Father, we ask that you'd be with us today and give us wisdom from your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, how's everyone? It's supposed to be 77 tomorrow. Yeah, I hear that. Okay. So today we're going to, um, two weeks ago, I taught a class on the question of how, do, how can we have assurance of salvation, right? Most of you would have been here for that. Uh, then last week I was gone and Ben taught on fasting? No, what did Ben do? He did Federal Vision last week? Oh my goodness. I thought he was going to flip that. What's that? No, no, yeah. Today we're going to discuss Federal Vision. Well, did you learn anything? Did you figure it out? Good. Today I'm going to revisit, um, we never really got through, there's a whole end, which is kind of, the end is always the best part, right? We never got to the end two weeks ago on assurance of salvation. There are very important things, so I want to, I'm going to revisit that and finish that off today, all right? So that's where we're going. So last two weeks ago, how can I help my, well actually this is what we're going to do today. These are the two questions we didn't get to. How can I help myself have assurance? We'd barely touched on that, but I was running through, and so that didn't do any good. And why does it matter, okay? So those are very important questions, because this is not just a, some kind of academic, theological, theoretical question. This has everything to do with your life as a Christian. All right? And so just to real quickly... Um, Two weeks ago, is assurance of salvation possible? Yes. Uh, John says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So the whole question is, can you know, is it possible to know that you have eternal life? Answer is yes. That's why the Apostle John wrote the letter of 1 John. Okay? So obviously that's a yes. And we talked about that at length two weeks ago. How, how can I have true assurance? And wh- one of the things I did two weeks ago is read to you the chapter from the Westminster Confession of Faith on this topic. Okay, it's one of these topics that's so important that when the, all those theologians and pastors got together 1640s to talk about what is it that we believe they have a whole chapter on this question. This is not some li- little side issue that you can you know, it doesn't really matter, or, well, we can agree to disagree. I mean, it was so important that they put it right in the confession of faith along with, you know, justification. You know what I'm saying? Scripture, the Trinity, along with all of that, assurance of salvation. That's how important they saw it to be. So we read that chapter, and the, um, the confession gives us three ways we can know that we can have true assurance. And I'm not going to read the confession at this point, but here's, here's what it, the points that it makes. Number one, how can I have true assurance of my salvation? Number one, the divine truth of the promises of salvation. So I'm just going to give you one verse for each of these just to refresh our memory. So remember in Acts 16, the apostles, uh, Paul and Barnabas and the Philippian jailer, 
Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. All right, that's like the simplest, most succinct version of all of these promises of salvation that come from God. If you believe on the Lord Jesus, you might be saved. All right, no, you will be, you will be. So that's, we, we rest our hope there, first and foremost. Secondly, the in, this is the language of the confession, by the way. These numbered things here are just taken straight from the confession. The inward evidence of, these, of those graces unto which these promises are made. What do we mean by that? Well, 1 John 2, 3, and, 3 to 6. By this we know that we have come to know him. That's the question. Right? That's, how do you know that you've come to know him? How do you know that you're a Christian? Well, by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, oh, I've come to know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. So here it is again. Here it is. This is how you know, right? The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Now, what does that not mean? What does that not mean? Yeah? Yeah. Uh, the, the same apostle earlier in, the, in, the, in 1 John says, um, if we say we don't have sin, we're liars, right? And so he's not schizophrenic. He's not saying one thing and then totally changing it, you know, a couple chapters later. He's saying, yes, we're all sinners. And yes, anyone who has come to know Christ, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, right? That's just, that's just all he's saying. Not perfectly, we can't. But if you don't care about the commandments of Christ, you know, you just blow it off, make a truce with your sin, all that kind of thing, then what does John say about you? The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a what? Is a liar. All right. This is, this is very serious, very serious. Jesus didn't save us to let us wallow in our sin. He saved us to make us holy. That actually is the point of our salvation. And if you, don't, if you have no concern for holiness, no growing ability to fight your sin... and yet that's the point of your salvation, then there's something wrong. All right, so that's the second one. You look at your, you, number one, let's go back. You look at the Bible, what does the Bible say? The Bible says whoever, if you believe in the Lord Jesus, you'll be saved, All right? And then you look at yourself. By this we know we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. And then number three, the testimony of the spirit of adoption witnessing with our spirits that we are children of God. 
So this is inside of you. This is something, you know, you've got, you've got this outside of you, right? Here it is, written in black and white. Every time you pick it up, it says the same thing. There it is, promises of God, eternally true. You've got that. Then you, you see what that book says about what a Christian looks like. So that's kind of objective in a sense. You know, you can look at someone and say, you're not living as a Christian. That's the whole basis of church discipline. Right? Someone is sinning. That's not, nor- that's not abnormal, Christian sin. So a Christian sins. Someone in the church sins. Someone who professes to be a Christian sins. And someone goes to him and says, look, brother, sister, you see what you're doing. This is wrong. Here's what the Bible says about this. This is wrong. And that person says, Psh, get away from me. I don't care. Right? And then, you, then that concerned brother goes and gets some other concerned brothers, maybe an elder, maybe a pastor. They come back and say, no, really. <laughs> you know, no, really. And he says, no, oh, leave me alone. And then it goes to the church, and he's treated as a what? What's the language say? What does Jesus say in, in Matthew 18? Anybody know? Treat him, let him be to you as a what? Well, it's not what it actually says, but yeah, what it means is an unbeliever. It says a tax collector and a sinner. <laughs> let, let him be to you like a tax collector. Uh, anyway, so yeah, so you, you treat him as if he is not a Christian because he has no basis of claiming to be a Christian at that point because what do Christians do? Well, it's not that they're sinless, but when they sin and they're shown their sin, what do they do? They repent. And if, if, an, if a professing Christian obstinately refuses to repent over and over again, at this point, you don't treat him as if he's a Christian because he's, he doesn't seem like a Christian at that point. Does that make sense? So that's, the, that's kind of objective as well. You've got the word of God, you've got the life of the, of the professing Christian, and then third, the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 4, 6, because you are sons... Because you are sons, you're sons, you're Christians, you've been adopted by God, you're in the family of God, God is your father. Because that's true, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And this is said many times, that's just one example, right? So there's something in you, the Holy Spirit, there's someone in you, the spirit of his son is what the Holy Spirit is called here. And what does the son do? The son, Jesus, calls out to God, his father. And so if you have that spirit, you know what that's like because you call out to God, your father, as well. All right? I can't look at you and determine that. Does that make sense? That's something that you have inside of you. Now, on the other hand, if you decide, you know what? Uh, I'm never going to talk to God as my father. I'm never going to call out to God as my father. I'll call him God. I'll call him Lord, maybe. I'll never call him father because I had a bad father and I don't, I don't, that doesn't. No, that's a problem. You understand? 
because what, what he says here is because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of a son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So when you call out to God as your father, that is proof, that is evidence that you're a son. Does that make sense? Only sons call out to their father, father. All right, so those are the three things that the confession says. How can we have it? Well, the promises of scripture, the divine truth of them, the evidence in your life, right? Do you look like a Christian? Do you live like one? Not a perfect, sinless, but when you sin, do you repent? Are you trying to, to kill your sin? And then do you have the Holy Spirit, the, the spirit of adoption inside of you, witnessing in your spirit that you're a child of God? So that was that question. I'm gonna give you a chance to answer, ask questions in just a second. Is there such a thing as false assurance? We looked at this last week. Jesus himself says, Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But again, he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? So these are people who think they're Christians. And they actually think they're doing the work of God, right? And then he says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. I never had an intimate relationship with you. You did all these things outwardly, but, that, but you didn't know me and I didn't know you. So yeah, there is such a thing as false assurance. <clears throat> now, I'm not gonna do this, but, because I don't have time, but this is, remember, this is the whole chapter on the Westminster, in the Westminster Confession of Faith on the assurance of grace and salvation. One paragraph, two paragraph, three paragraph, four paragraphs. That was two slides. So it has four paragraphs on this whole topic of assurance of salvation, and it's right. It really is reflect, I believe, what the Bible teaches. So take this seriously. Serious enough to put, to make a confessional issue. Does that make sense to everybody? To make a, an issue that is so important that we're gonna codify it, we're gonna nail it down. We're gonna say, what does the Bible actually teach about this? And, and, and make this a, an, an article of our faith. All right? Now, before we go on to the two questions I wanna deal with today, any questions about all that stuff so far? Or thoughts, or comments, or disagreements, whatever. Yes, Caleb. Mm-hmm. Well, in, in that verse in Hebrews, there is no difference. Faith is the assurance, okay? So faith has in it assurance. You can't, um, that doesn't mean you can have, uh, how can I put this? That is not to say that if you have any kind of doubts, you don't have faith, because our faith can be weak. Uh, but faith has in it assurance by definition, by, de by the definition of Hebrews, right? 
And if you were here two weeks ago, we, we looked at a long quote from Calvin to that effect. Um, but I'm not going to, we can't read all that again, but that, that's what I think is true. We can have weak faith, and the weakest faith, um, the weakest faith gets all the, all the blessings of all of Christ instantly, okay? Um, but what we're going to look at here in a minute is that the, the growth in godliness depends on stronger faith, okay? More assurance. We'll talk about that more in a second. Is that a hand or, yeah. Does that, does that answer your question, sort of? Doug? Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. Yep. Any other questions? Let me just talk about that now. That's a, this is a good time to move into that, um, <clears throat> I think. No, we'll get it in a second. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. His question is, um, it's a question I'm going to answer in a minute, okay? But it's on, it, uh, one of our problems is that we tend to put, uh, how can I put this? We tend to look inward in such a way that's not helpful, all right? In other words, I know I'm a Christian because I'm looking at myself, and I see something in me. Now, there is an element of that because of what we've seen. There is absolutely an element of that. And yet, you don't put faith in the quality of your faith. You put your faith in Christ. Anyone who, who tries to get assurance by looking primarily inward at the state of their, like their emotional state or their, you know, their, the old word for this, you, you, hear, you see this a lot in the hymns sometime that we sing. Let me think, uh, what's one I can think of? Um, where they're addressing this issue. Yeah, that's, that's the sweetest frame. That's what it is, yeah. Yeah, how does it go again? I dare not trust the sweetest frame, yes. So what does that mean? I dare not, you know that song, right? Uh, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, I dare not trust the sweetest frame. What, what frame? Glasses? You know? What does that mean? That means I, I don't put my trust in even the sweetest, most pious, most godly feeling that I see in my heart. Experience. You know, I had a really good quiet time, therefore I know I'm a Christian. You know, I really had a good time of prayer, therefore I know I'm a Christian. And what uh, the author of that hymn, which I'm not sure who it was, is saying is, that's not where you put your faith. You don't put your faith in, in even the sweetest experience that you've had. But wholly, completely, holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly, completely, on Jesus, right? Yep. Thank you, Ben. That's, that's what I was looking for. All right, let's move on. How can I help myself have assurance? Now, here I do want to quote the, the confession, all right? Really good. So, yet being enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given him of God, he may, this is the, the Christian, 
he may without extraordinary revelation, so this, he's saying, you can have assurance without getting zapped by lightning, you know, from heaven and getting, a, seeing the heavens open and having this direct revelation from God. It doesn't, no, you've got, you've got all the revelation you need in scripture, right? So he can, without extraordinary revelation, in the right use of ordinary means. So we're going to talk about what those ordinary means are, all right? The, this the normal things that God has given to every Christian that every Christian has access to. In the right use of ordinary means, attain thereunto, right? It means he can have it. You can have it. You can have assurance of, of salvation. You don't have to be zapped by lightning. He's given you everything you need. And therefore, it is the duty of everyone to give all diligence to make his calling and election sure. It's the duty. And we'll talk about that more from Scripture in just a moment, but this is a good reflection of what Scripture actually teaches. This is not something you're allowed to not care about. This is not something you're allowed to not pursue. If you're weak in this, you need to be stronger. You need to pursue it over the course of your life. You need to, you need to do this. This is what they're saying. It's the duty of everyone to give all diligence to make his calling and election sure that thereby his heart may be enlarged in peace. So this thereby, everything after this thereby is our second question. What difference does it make? That thereby, that having this assurance, his heart may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Ghost, in love and thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness, in the duties of obedience, the proper fruits of this assurance. So all that stuff is the proper fruit of this assurance. This is why it matters. We'll get to that in a minute. So far is it from inclining men to looseness. So in other words, that last little line, okay? Having assurance does not make you say, whatever, I don't, I don't care about obeying God because look, I know, I know I'm a Christian, right? I know I'm a Christian. I don't care about obeying God because I know that whatever I do, it doesn't matter. That's, that's looseness, do you understand? Licentiousness, libertine, you know, antinomianism against the law. And what the, these guys say is no, 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 no. It doesn't make you loose right, in your pursuit of holiness and, and lazy about it, it actually drives you on. And we'll talk about that at length here in the end. I saw it, yes. That phrase, extraordinary revelation, is a refutation of the Roman Catholic doctrine. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the Roman, again, a lot of this is in contradiction to the Roman Catholic teaching, and David is right. The Roman Catholics teach it is absolutely the rarest exception for any Christian, any professing Christian to have assurance of salvation, that if you claim to have assurance of salvation, you're probably being presumptuous and arrogant, and that if you have assurance of salvation, it'll make you sin, okay? That's what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, and that's so a lot of this is in response to that. Unless God zaps you and give you, gives you a special, you know, certainty that no one else gets hardly ever. So let's look at the, the scriptures on this. 2 Corinthians 13.5, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. So this is, what do you call that? 
Well, yeah, yeah, but it's a, it's a command, yeah. Well, I was going a little simpler than, <laughs> it's a command. It is a command to examine yourself, but it's a command, okay? That's why the confession uses that word duty. All right? Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. So twice. But look at what he says next. This is interesting. The way he puts this, the next line, is what is a question. See the question mark? It's kind of two questions, sort of. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? So basically he's saying, he's talking to people who profess to be Christians, and he's saying you must examine yourself and test yourself, but his default is you know you're a Christian. Don't, Don't you realize this? Don't you recognize this about yourselves? Don't you see that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. There are people who have false assurance, but that's not his first assumption, okay? We can get this backwards, all right? We can, um, in an attempt to be holy uh, or humble, we can, we can think, okay, the hardest thing is probably true about me. That's not what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He says, yeah, examine yourself, test yourself. Don't you see? Don't you see that Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test, but that's the exception as opposed to the rule in the people that he's talking to. It's just very interesting. But nevertheless, there you have it. it the, the, the duty to examine yourself and recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you. How would you know if Jesus Christ is in you? Well, let's see. Uh, the promises of God, the fruit of obedience in my life, and the Holy Spirit. Second Peter 1. <clears throat> It's going to be across two slides, so so follow along. 5 to 11. Now for this very reason also, and the reason is that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the promises that come in Christ, okay? He's given us everything we need. He's worked in us. He has um, made us to escape the corruption that's in the world by lust. He's given us, to make, made us partakers of the divine nature, he says, all right? So since that's true, for this very reason also, applying all diligence, there's that word again, diligence. This is not something you just coast and float and let go and let God. Let go and let God is nowhere taught in Scripture when it comes to this. All right? Applying all diligence. In your faith, supply moral excellence. The moral excellence is the proof of your faith. All right, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, keep going, and in your perseverance, godliness, 
godliness here is, is an attitude of um, affection and, and f- the fear of God, all right? Godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness, if you say that you love God and hate your brother, you're a what? A liar. Because how can you love God whom you've not seen and hate your brother whom you have seen? So brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these, now look what he says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, isn't that nice? Not yours and you've arrived, but there, and, and increasing, they're there, but they're, it's not perfection by any stretch. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is progressive growth in holiness, okay? And that's how you become useful. Now he goes on, he's not done yet. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. This is interesting as well. This is someone that Peter assumes has been purified from his former sins. He professes to have been purified from his former sins at least. But if you lack these qualities, what does that make you? Blind, short-sighted. Because if you're blind or short-sighted, what are you missing? You're missing the point. (laughs) The point, you're missing the end. Short-sighted means I can't see very far, right? That's what it means to be short-sighted. I can see things up close, but I can't see the the back wall, you know. And if you're professing to be a Christian, but you're not giving yourself diligently to these qualities that he says to give yourself to, then you don't see the end. The, The whole point of your salvation is godliness, holiness. He who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to, to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Over and over again, he uses that word diligent, right? With all diligence, be diligently, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Why? Now, someone, think about the logic of this passage. Tell me, why are you to be certain about his calling and choosing you? Brian, what's the logic of it? Not not only am I pointing at you, I'm talking to you. (laughs) The reason we must be diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you is that certainty about his calling and choosing you lets you pursue these qualities with diligence. we'll, We'll talk about that more in a minute. But it's here in this passage. In other words, what difference does it make? You get strength to pursue holiness when you have this assurance. 
We'll, we'll talk about that more in a second. The point that I wanted you to see from this, this is not something that you just coast. This is not let go and let God. This is diligent work. Does that make sense? And it's a duty. Look at this one, Hebrews 6. And we desire that each one of you, each one of you, show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Diligence, to have what? Diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, persevering hope does not come automatically, necessarily. It's something you have to fight for. You have to be diligent for. What is the opposite of this persevering hope, this assurance? Sluggishness. Right? So that you will not be sluggish. What does he mean by sluggish? You know, what we all feel like when we walk outside yesterday? <laughs> you know the feeling, right? You walk outside and you just like, it, zap, it saps the strength out of you. You don't want to do anything. Sluggishness. But he's not talking about that kind of sluggishness. He's talking about spiritual sluggishness where you just decide, I just don't want to do anything. If you, if you cultivate that sluggishness, that laziness, spiritually, right? You will not realize the full assurance of hope until the end. You will not be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. But if you are diligent, you will. Okay? All right. Romans 8. This is answering the question, how can I have assurance of salvation? How can I strengthen this in me? We've seen over and over again, be diligent. All right, be diligent, do the work. Um, but here's something else. This is what I think the Apostle Paul is trying to get us, get us to in Romans 8. And he starts asking all these questions and arguing with us and reasoning with us. What then shall we say to these things? Everything he said up to this point, and we'll get to that, you know, at some point. <laughs> Soon, because we're already in chapter 7. What, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? So think about these, these questions in the light of, how can, I have, how can I know that God is good towards me? How can I know that he, how can I have this assurance that God is good towards me, not towards people in general out there, theoretically, and, but towards me? Well, if God is for us, who is against us? What's the answer to that? Nobody. He who did not spare his own son. So you think, yeah, but he's not for me. Oh, really? What did he do for you? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for who? What's it say? For us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? He's already given you the most precious thing, his son. 
and somehow you still think he's stingy. You still think he's stingy. Oh, yes, I believe God gave Jesus. Oh, yes, yes, yes. But he's a harsh taskmaster. Right? Really? Okay. He did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will we not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? What's the answer to that? This is a court, right? Who's going who's gonna to bring a charge against you that can stick? What's the answer? Nobody. God is the one who justifies. If God justifies you, there's no higher court of appeal that's going to overturn that ruling, right? It's God who justifies. Who is the one who, condemn, who condemns? Condemnation is gone, Romans 8, 1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Nothing can stand against that. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? That's an assurance question, right? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us, not because you loved him. It's not about the quality of your love for him. It's that he loved you. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's your assurance. Believe that. It's something you have to argue yourself into believing because that's what the Apostle Paul's doing here. He's arguing with you to get you to think straight, to get us to think straight. So use this and argue with yourself. And then one last thing here. For I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. Now, we saw last week the letter from Martin Luther. Now, let's move on to this and we must be done very soon. Why is this so important? I'm gonna read to you um, a quote from a book that we have out in the office called Peace and Holiness by Horatius Bonner. And uh, it's a very good book. You all should read it. It's not hard. It's good. Here's what he says. Um, Every plant must have both soil and root. Without both of these, there can be no life, no growth, or no fruit. Unless, of course, you're growing in hydroponics. So soil and root, right? If you don't have a soil, the soil to, to draw from and the root to tap into it, you don't have fruit. Okay, we all understand that. Then he says, holiness must have these. A root and, and soil to grow in. The root is peace with God. The soil in which that root strikes itself and out of which it draws the vital sap is the free love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Rooted in love is the apostle's description of a holy man. A holy man is rooted in love. Holiness is not austerity or gloom. These are as alien to it as levity and flippancy. 
Okay, holiness is not austerity and gloom, neither is it blowing everything off, right? Flippancy, no. Nor is it the offspring of terror. Holiness is not the offspring, the fruit of terror or suspense or uncertainty, but peace, conscious peace. And this peace must be rooted in grace. It must be the consequence of our having ascertained upon sure evidence the forgiving love of God. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans 5.1. Right? Having been justified by faith, knowing that you're declared righteous by God, by the free grace of God, by the work of Christ, therefore we have peace with God. All right? The teaching of some in the present day seems fitted, seems designed, like the point of this teaching by some, seems fitted, that of others absolutely intended. So some just kind of goes this way, but some people it seems actually mean this intentionally to hinder assurance. He says some people today, their teaching hinders assurance. Assurance, say some, is impossible, right? Roman Catholics say that, for one. Uh, Not impossible, say others, but very hard of attainment. Not only very hard, but very long of being reached, requiring at least some 30 or 40 years of prayer and good works. Very dangerous, say others, introducing presumption and sure to end in apostasy. I confess I do not see how my being thoroughly persuaded that a holy God loves me with a holy love and has forgiven me all my sins has a tendency to evil. In other words, promotes in my my life evil as opposed to holiness. He says, I don't get it. How can that be the case? And then he ends with this. It seems of all truths, the truth, God loves you in Christ freely and totally, right? It seems of all truths, one of the likeliest to make me holy, to kindle love, to stimulate to good works, and to abase all pride. Whereas uncertainty in this matter enfeebles me. You know what that means? It means it makes me weak, right? Uncertainty in this matter enfeebles me, darkens me, bewilders me, incapacitates me for service, or at the best, sets me striving to work my way into the favor of God under the influence of a subordinate and mercenary class of motives. You know what a mercenary is? The soldier who fights not because it's right, not because it's honorable, not because out of loyalty for the country, but out of money. And he'll, he'll fight for anybody who will pay him the most. Right? So under the influence of a subordinate and mercenary class of motives, which can do nothing but keep me dreading and doubting all the days of my life, leaving me perhaps at the close in hopeless darkness. So here's the question. What's the point? Why should we pursue diligently the duty of having this assurance? Because this assurance is the root and soil of your holiness. That's why. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
So if you have a good father that he, you know that he loves you, you're going to want to please him. This is not, you know, rocket science, <laughs> right? We know this. We know this. Okay, so we got to be done, clearly. Sorry, I'm late. Let's pray. Father, would you please have mercy on us and give us this full assurance of hope. Let us pursue it diligently, firm until the end. Let us know the, the sweet fruit that comes out of it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.